Christmas indeed. A distraction for fools. An annual cavalcade of one-upmanship and heartburn. Well, no more. I won't be seeing my parents again, not since that shunning business. My own children apparently like their new dad better, because he supposedly never forgets their names or birthdays. Try hard. Ugh. Nope. This Christmas, I'm gonna have some me time. And I'm gonna enjoy every second of- Are you kidding me? Seriously? Mother of God. What? Hello, governor. Spare a throppant for me Indiegogo campaign. India what? I'm just collecting for pre-production funds for my pilot. It's basically Family Guy meets Stressed Eric. I'm hounded by urchins, reaching to take advantage of my charitable nature. Ugh, this damned human race. Who needs friendship or love or any of that sexual intercourse nonsense anyway? Between my Hellraiser and real Ghostbusters figurines, I have all the companionship I need. Jesus Christ, it's freezing in here. Year-round draft exclusion, my ass. Ben Mitchell. Uh, who dat, yos? Ask not who I am, but who I was. Alright, don't be a dick, you knew what I meant. It is I, your old podcast partner, Steve Henderson. Bullshit. Steve Henderson died in that embarrassingly public autoerotic asphyxiation mishap. Everyone knows that. I didn't die. I just went to Loughborough, which is basically the same thing. Hold on a tick. There you go. Ben, it is clear you've lost your Christmas spirit. Your seasonal joy, and let's be honest, anybody who chooses a career in animation needs as much joy as they can get into their miserable lives, lest they snap and start beating co-workers to death with their own peg bars. It happens more often than you think. Then I beseech you, Spectre, tell me how I may avoid such a fate. Don't be flowery, pray. Don't what? I don't know, just roll with it. <clears throat> this very day, you will have three visitations. Uh, three, you say? How about that? See where we're going with this, folks? Yeah, I would say that out of all the Christmas references, this one is absolutely the least overdone. Say, Steve, these three visitations, would they be of the ghostly variety, perchance? Yeah, not really. More the pre-recorded informational content pertaining specifically to the upcoming seasonal programming variety. All right, I guess we're committing to this. Who are they, Steve? Firstly, there's Tim Searle of Baby Cow Animation. Uh, Baby Cow have two fantastic holiday specials being broadcast this season. The Cow That Almost Missed Christmas and Uncle Wormsley's Christmas. There's also Michael Rose, producer of Chicken Run, Chico and Rita, and also The Gruffalo's Child. Latest project, Room on the Broom, is being broadcast on Christmas Day. Not to mention Lupus Films, the studio behind the much-anticipated follow-up to The Snowman, which is The Snowman and the Snow Dog. We'll hear from the assistant director, Robin Shaw, and the co-writer and director, Hilary Aldous. As I see, so if anyone of a similarly curmudgeonous disposition as myself were to listen to all three, you reckon they'd be infused with seasonal merriment and whimsy? Yeah, indeed. Uh, in fact, I guarantee that by the end of it all, you'll be just as joyful as me. And if you're not, I'll slime you. Wait, I thought you weren't meant to be a ghost. Uh, yeah, apparently it's a very inconsistent script we're working with here, Ben. 
Our first Christmas podcast interview is with Tim Searle. Stephen, why don't you tell me who he is, what he does, and how he's going to get me in the Christmas spirit? Well, a little bit of an introduction then. Tim Searle, he's the head of, or the director of Baby Cow Animation. Uh, Baby Cow Animation is responsible for I'm Not an Animal. He did 2D TV back when he was part of Trific Films, uh, the company that he set up straight from college. He's also made a few films that's been on the circuit recently. You may have seen Marvin, the film with uh, Steve Coogan's voiceover. Yes, Mark Newt. Because Baby Cow Animation is part of Baby Cow, the company set up by Henry Normal, Steve Coogan, and as uh, the likes of Armendu Iannucci mm. involved. Uh, they obviously have created comedy programs for the last 10, 12 years or so. The sort of top brass of, of British sitcom comedy. Well, yeah. Some, I think, certainly for our generation. So it continues to create great British comedy and... Uh, what we're concentrating on now is um, Baby Cow Animation and the great quality comedy animation of which for this Christmas season, Ben, we have two. Uh, we have uh, The Cow That Almost Missed Christmas, uh, which has been directed by Tim, and uh, Uncle Wormsley's Christmas, two completely different films. Mm-hmm. But both somehow Christmassy. Uh, yes, yeah, so The Cow That Almost Missed Christmas, it's a, uh, a one-off half-hour uh, animation. Even though it is on CBeebies, it is filled with the sort of the cream of UK comedy talent. You've got uh, Izzy Sutty, or Dobby from Peep Show, as she often gets referred to by idiots like me. Johnny Vegas, Miriam Margoyles, you remember, from uh, Blackadder? Oh, yeah, she's a, a beloved staple of, of British character comedy. I found out recently that she was the Cadbury's Caramel Bunny. Really? Yeah. Wow. You know, the really sexy, seductive, you know, Cadbury's Caramel. Well, who knew? Well, I apparently well, you, you. We both do now. Yeah, and now everyone listening knows. Blimey. Is it pronounced Margoyles or Margolies? Margol, Mar yes. <laughs> Miriam Margoyles, I would say. Margolies. Margol. Uh, I think Miriam. it's spelled Margolies. It's spelled Margolies, but I hear Margoyles more than I hear Margolies. Yeah, so it's basically it's about a cow um, that happens to be around Bethlehem around the time of Jesus' birth. So, uh, yeah, it's a point of view that we haven't really seen before. The point of view from the Christmas Bethlehem cow. Exactly. Spying on, on baby Jesus being born. Can you say that you've seen that before? I I have not. Yeah, there we go then. So what's the, uh, who's the cow? Uh, the cow is um, voiced by Izzy Sutty. Uh, well worded. she done any other cartoon work? I don't think she has. No, I think she's basically mainly stand-up and, um, and peep show, mm. perhaps. So cutting her teeth. And the in the animation world with this uh, with this piece, yeah. Also new to this, um, the story is written by Andy Cutbill and illustrated by Russell Ato. Which, although it's um, although the the film uses Baby Cow's cutout style, it is done in the style of Russell's illustrations. Very sort of vivid, bright illustrations. Which, uh, yeah, I think you'll I think you'll agree look very nice. Yeah, I'm looking at the trailer now, and it is a lovely, lovely style. Mm. And interesting, like, it, it has that same quality, it has that same style of movement that a lot of their sort of productions have, rigged 2D animation. It's, it's, it's expertly done. I'm just sort of watching without sound, like a sort of conversation between two chickens at the moment. And just the subtle and the movement and the, the way that, you know, the, the characters are kind of 
always sort of on the go, but it's not overwhelming. So what else is he up to when he's not coming up with this uh, sacrilegious propaganda? Uh, well, he's, he's uh, produced Uncle Wormsley's Christmas. Mm. So this one is clearly more the sort of, I think, photo collage style, that sort of I'm not an animal look to it. Nothing's really drawn. It's all like cut apart and put together again, you know, and it's interesting. Another impressive uh, cast roster with the uh, voices, Julian Barrett and... Uh, Julia Davis, John Thompson. Uh, you've also got Steve Coogan narrating. I am utterly in love with Julia Davis for like the last 10 years. She's such a psychopath. <laughs> I mean, some of the, and, you know, I mean, she seemed like an incredibly nice, you know, soft-spoken woman, but the dark, dark shit she's come up with as a writer, like, she's amazing. Yeah. I'd love to see, like, some animation stuff written by her. Yeah. But I think that's probably the kind of real darkness that the animation world needs. And she's like a very pretty, blonde, English Todd Salones, <laughs> who I mentioned in the last podcast, like, really kind of takes you to the edge of what you can stand with dark comedy. And you feel kind of, like, exhausted, but at the same time energized by it so it's always nice to see her name associated with anything i think this is probably where baby cow as a company comes into its own because it can create something dark and it does use animation and, and tim's a great advocate of the use of animation for the more bizarre things hmm. and certainly nothing more bizarre really this christmas time that you will see than uncle wormsley's christmas it's basically about an old man who owns a giant crab called crabsley and crabsley rather happily lives in a dungeon under his house, but <laughs> eats exclusively household pets. Ah, okay. And as if that wasn't weird enough, Crabsley then uh, gets kidnapped by crab catchers. The crab catchers then deliver Crabsley. <laughs> How many times can we say crab in this podcast? Uh, then deliver Crabsley to a millionaire's, a billionaire's son, rather, uh, called Johnny who is besotted by the idea of having a giant crab. Now, when you're sat around uh, the telly at Christmas and you see a, a child billionaire singing in rather a, a shrieking voice for his love of a giant crab, you take a little bit of a step back and think, this is weird. From your description, it does seem to be one of the more crab-centric Christmas specials I've encountered. <laughs> yes, yeah, very much so. So it's a very crabby Christmas, all told. It's crab in the crustacean sense, not in the need-to-buy-a-special-shampoo sense. Yes. Yeah, it's very much. Although that could have its own Christmas special in and of itself, although South Park kind of did that, I yeah. guess. <laughs> oh, well. They always come up with the good ideas first. Yeah, well, this is this is an extremely good alternative Christmas story, I think you could call it, yeah. Uh-huh. Directed by David Shute. And yeah, it's it's an incredibly entertaining half hour worth of television, which is, it's on around Christmas, Christmas Eve, Boxing Day, Christmas Day. Well worth watching. I would, I would recommend it highly. So two very different Christmas specials for the season. One for the young'uns and one for the not-so-young'uns, or, or depends on how you raise your, your kids, I suppose. I think it's, it's one for the family audience and one for the weird family audience. Ah, yes. Excellent. Let's hear from the guy behind both of them, Mr. Tim Searle. Tim Searle, Baby Cow Animations, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Maybe you could uh, start by telling us a little bit about the history of uh, Baby Cow Animation and, uh, and how it came about. Well, Baby Cow Animation started actually about 12 years ago when I met Henry and Steve. I'd previously been doing quite a lot of TV animation, but mostly short form. 
and I wanted to get into doing narrative. I was a fan of uh, Henry Normal's poems. In a former life, I was a musician, and uh, we were playing at the Edinburgh Festival, and uh, we'd play late, and then have all day to go and watch comedy. I remember we were trying to go and see something like the Gilded Balloon. We couldn't get in to see that, and we looked around and was like, oh, we'll go and see this one, and it was Henry Normal. And uh, we went in, and me and my now wife Lisa, we, we laughed our heads off. A tiny little audience, and we were laughing the most. Afterwards, I kept seeing his name popping up from shows that I really liked, you know, and uh, as a script editor. And uh, I was working on a show um, called Holding the Baby, I don't know if you remember it. I did the title sequence for, for that. And a friend of mine, Georgia Pritchett, she was working on it as well. And uh, uh, I said, oh, can you get me in touch with Henry? You know, because I like his stuff and I want to animate one of his poems because I thought it would be a really good short film for a festival. So I got in touch with him and I showed him what I did and he liked what I did. And basically I went down to Brighton and in his back garden we just storyboarded some stuff. You know, he, he'd talk about an idea and um, I just literally sat there. And so it, it came out in just a straightforward, honest great process because we just got along straight away you know like you know there was an understanding between each other eventually i met up with peter bain because he had this couple of pages about i'm not an animal and then we developed that and then baby cow animation started as a result of that should we talk a little bit more about the the, the style that, that you have developed over the years with Trific and then with baby cow in 2d tv and mm. uh, i'm not an animal mm. uh, lots of sort of asset based puppet animation now, would you call this a house style? I mean, it's certainly pulled off very well. Well, it's a response, really, because, you know, I come from a time before digital animation, but I got the opportunity to do a series with Channel 4, one of these little short series that go out after Channel 4 News in that little five-minute window at the end of Channel 4 News. It was called The Outlaw, and it was about Britain's last smoker in a world that's run now by the health police. What had happened was that Claire Kitson, I met Claire Kitson, and she said, oh, I've got this thing, I really want to do it, but Spitting Image were going to do it, and they can't now because they've shut. Um, so will you take it on? And it was like, yeah. So, so it was four five-minute shows, you know, and basically we did it, we drew it all, and it was composited with CG backgrounds. And I remember looking at the huge boxes of artwork that we had to produce to make 20 minutes of animation and thought, that's the problem, that's my problem. Because if I want to do narrative animation, and I don't want to get into outsourcing it to you know, other markets, other cheaper places, because I like the process of animation, I think specifically with comedy, how do you explain a joke to someone in India or China? I don't get it. So I wanted to work out a way of doing it. And basically the next thing that came along was the thing for Channel 4 called Rolf's Animal Hairdressers, which... Uh, which um, which, which, which was a really, uh, I think, um, Tony Burgess has since gone on to become a very well-respected comedy writer. He's a really, really talented and funny man. He came to me with a script, which I remember sitting on the train and laughing out loud. It was that funny, you know, and, and it was just so brilliant. And basically, we got into the process of making this 15-minute uh, for Channel 4, and I, I designed it all, and it was always a very clean look to the style of it. We wanted it to sort of look a bit like Roger Ramjet, but with bits of collage and that in the background. And then I had no idea how to make it, really. Uh, I assumed we were going to just have to do it with you know, drawings, as we, it always had done. And then I'd heard down through the grapevine about cell action, 
And at the time, they're just doing the big nights. I phoned them up. They came to see us. Basically, we just said, oh, so we'll, we'll give it a go. And so Rolf's Animal Hairdressers, which has since gone into the, the gut, and no one has heard about it, the script got completely screwed up. It was funny to start with, but it was a real learning experience on being true to yourself, not letting other people intervene too much. There's a process that you have to go through with producing something, but it's also it's a really important thing that you hold on to the integrity of the project. It ain't that funny. Anyway, cut one story short, it was a really handy thing for me because it showed me that we could make animation in the UK quickly. And then as a result of that, and Giles, who I was working with on A Violent News For You, said, do you reckon we could make animation fast? Because I know that there's a desire to do a topical show, and it wouldn't be great to make the first you know, topical sketch show animated one. I knew that we could do it, so we did a test. And then from that, we realised that we could do animation fast. You know, So we basically did a pilot. And... Uh, Huge response, I think it was 7 million or something. It was bonkers, you know. And then we got serious, you know, and it was like happy days. We did five series. And I think it sort of served the media and people were like seeing politicians pull down a bit, you know. And I think it's fair to say we sort of erred a bit towards the entertainment world to, uh, rather than being satirical towards the later series. But for me, I'd still love to show the world for what it is. I think the climate's probably ripe for another uh, let's rip into the politicians show, at least. I think, well, uh, in terms of the audience, there's no doubt about that. But I'm not entirely convinced that there's an appetite for it amongst the broadcasters. So. That's a shame. Mm, watch this space, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, oh good, good, good. We'll keep, it, we'll keep an eye on that. Maybe we should fast forward to today and what you're actually working on at the moment. Um, yeah. This Christmas... You're going to be premiering The Cow That Almost Missed Christmas. It's another one of Baby Cow's fantastic films that showcases a lot of British comedy talent. Um, Izzy Sutty, Johnny Vegas, Miriam Margulies, um, Simon Greenall, the guy who did the Meerkats, who you've worked with quite a bit. Yeah. And I worked with him on the, the Viz Comedy Blaps. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that came about? Uh, I was a fan of the books that Andy Cutbill and Russell Ato produced, uh, The Cow That Laid an Egg, and there's a couple more as well. They're really lovely picture books for kids that I'd come across for my kids, and they're really quirky and fun, and that there's a crossover with the way that Russell uses collage and the way that we use collage a lot with backgrounds and stuff. And, yeah, I really liked it. So, and we met, and Penny had an idea, basically, to wanted to do something nativity from a cow's point of view so Andy went off and worked that one up and we ended up with a very funny I think half hour script and the folks at uh, CBeebies um, found a slot and we went for it and the stars aligned for us so I'm very proud of it it's a very funny little half hour we haven't had enough time to make it but that's the thing with cell action is that you can sharpen your elbows up and fit and go for it and that's what we did Russell Ato is the illustrator of the books you know he, he's not done animation before and I think he's very pleased with what we've done you know, we've been very faithful to his his world and style and, and in the same way as I said we've done with the horrible histories with Martin Brown stuff you have to be very respectful of the illustrator's work you uh, you mentioned horrible histories there which recently won a children's BAFTA again mm. so you know congratulations uh, yeah, to yourself and your team I mean, what is it about animation? It's visual way of communicating, way of entertaining. How, how do you see that? Well, I've got to say we're doing another Christmas special as well, which we've done with Joel Veach and uh, David Shute, Tim Gallagher, 
which is on Sky Atlantic called Uncle Worms with His Christmas. So that's going to be what a weird thing to have two Christmas shows on on Christmas Day. So uh, it couldn't be more different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the Uncle Worms with Christmas is uh, a, a, quite a dark tale. Uh, be careful what you wish for type thing. Done in a photo collage style. That's a lovely project as well. So, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. I mean, we finished that in... June, I think it was. So it's been a, in my mind, it, it's already gone out, but it obviously hasn't. So uh, it'll be, be interesting to see that both go down. But hey, back to your question. Animation for me is unique combination. You know, you get to basically work on a script, then the sound design and the way that it's acted in a very distilled and specific way. You know, and that you can't do with live action. You know, a lot of people say, "Oh, when are you going to start doing live action?" I've got no desire to do live action. I love animation. I like the idea of doing something like Terry Gilliam, perhaps where you're manipulating live action, and I don't rule it out, but I never want to just do straight live action. A few years ago, I went on that Dick Williams Masterclass thing. It was a week long that they did the book from. I remember a brilliant quote he gave us, which is from that Milk Khan, is it actually his name? Milk Khan. Yeah, and uh, he, he said, I've been accused of being a fine draftsman, which is something I resent. He said, because the difference between me and a lot of other people is that I work at a drawing to make it good to my standards, to my level I want it to be. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, getting it wrong. But the idea is that a lot of people say, oh, I can't draw, I can't draw. But the difference between people who say they can draw and can't are the people that just carry on working at it. Animation, drawing, all of it, it ain't a science. But it, it, it does require application, you know, and you've got to give it a go, you know. It ain't going to just fall in your lap. And you just have to work, okay, and like that milk guy, you just have to sort of not be prepared to just put up with, that'll do. You've got to keep keep at it. You know? And with comedy, it's all about looking like a swan, you know. Above the surface, it's all calm, and underneath it, you're swimming away like mad, you know. And uh, that's the thing with all comedy, you know. And that's the same with animation, you know. It's out there, it just goes on, people like it, hooray. But, you know, every frame has been bought there. We should go back to Uncle Wormsley's Christmas. Um, I saw it and, and I just I loved it. I, I thought it was, I mean, when you see a, a billionaire child singing about a love for a giant crab that eats small pets, you, you sort of have to take a little bit of a step back and, and think how unique a project such as this is. And it's, and it's got, obviously, it's a unique, a unique brand of comedy. Steve Coogan, who starred in uh, many of Baby Car Animation stuff, he, he did Viz Blaps and he did Mark Newt's Fantastic Marvin as well. And I'm not an animal. Uh, yeah. He tells a little bit about how, how the different types of comedy work. On one side, you've got Izzy Sutty and Johnny Vegas creating some children's book, which has got tremendous appeal still. And then you've got this wonderful fantasy story, creepy, bizarre, entertaining fantasy story with Uncle Wormsley's Christmas. How do you look at one and think, yeah, that's what I want to go for there? How do you look at the other and think, that's what I want to go for there? Well, I like to think that with Baby Cat Animation, you know, we're working with authors. Comedy's a broad church, you know, and I really like Joel's stuff. It was a real honour and a lot of fun to work with, with him and his team, you know. But yeah, I mean, in terms of, of comedy, they're, yeah, they're, within Baby Cow, there's, we produce a wide range of, of stuff. Things like the cow that almost missed Christmas is specifically designed to appeal to a family audience. It's broad and hooray for that. It's not intended to, to be dark in, a, in any way, but with, with Joel and Tim's script, it always had that 
sort of Brothers Grimm kind of fairy tale type feel to it, you know, and, and you know, hooray for that as well, you know, and uh, like I say, it's just great to be able to sort of do a wide range of, of stuff, you know, but having said that, I think that hopefully there's a bit of hopeful sort of quirky integrity that runs through the work like a stick of rock and people can kind of go, oh, well, yeah, that, that makes sense, you know, that, that comes from that company or that team. Once Christmas is out of the way and everything's been shown there, what's next for Baby Cow? Well, more horrible histories, the last lot of that. The big thing I'll be getting stuck into is called Warren, uh, the Wild World of Warren, which, uh, which is a six times 30 minutes that we're doing for ITV, uh, which is unusual uh, because all the animation's been done in Canada and I'm directing, but we're in it over the internet. And... Um, it's a drama, comedy drama, written by Simon Nye, who did Men Behaving Badly and lots of other great stuff. And uh, it's about this bloke played by Darren Boyd, who's uh, 37 and a half and crazy about his football team, Brainsford United. They're the most important thing in my life. Part of my family, of course. And it's just that the idea that when blokes get to that age, um, quite often, you know, they've got a family and work and all the rest of it, but they dive into a passion that's outside of logic. So, like, you know, it might be fly fishing or motorbikes or Volkswagens or, or in his case, it's football. And it's all, basically, this, this show is about passion. And being middle-aged, <laughs> I really understand that. You know, I've, uh, many of my friends, it's a trait that I can can see very evidently. So uh, it's a project that's uh, it's taken six years to get off the ground. There's a lot of heart in it. I wish I could say the same for some of the other stuff that's on tape. Um, you know, so mention no names, but you know, I, I think people need to like the characters. You know, I think it's important. Well, uh, it certainly sounds like your passion that one there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we're developing a kids show which is called Wussy Wabat the Clumsy Cat. It's got a commission from CBeebies, but um, we're just in the process of trying to finish the deal off. It's a very difficult thing to do. You know, we get a percentage of the money from CBeebies. They're not allowed to give us anymore. But it'd be 52 times fives, and then we'd be tax break. I've been blind. There wasn't much good news in the autumn statement, but that was for the animation community, and then that's brilliant. I think it's something that everyone's, everyone's looking forward to. It's something that we've been following here on, uh, on the website as well. And it's also great to hear companies like baby cow supporting UK animators and things like that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, there's a lot of, lot of talent in the UK and, and it's, it's a triple shame that at the moment, you know, it's being underutilised and a lot of people are working overseas, you know. Uh, and I've got nothing against the, the, the folks in Ireland, and, you know, but uh, hooray for them. Hopefully now, we're, we're doing co-productions, we'll be able to go to them in Ireland and places like Canada and places, and rather than being on the back foot, we'll be able to work with them on a kind of equitable basis, which is good for all of us, and uh, about bloody time. <laughs> Excellent. Well, when's um, when's the cow that almost missed Christmas on? It's on Christmas Day at 6.30 in the morning. She's good for little kids, not so great for the mums and dads, but uh, maybe the mums and dads can set the, uh, set the video or the sky glass and go back to bed and watch it later. Uh, it's, uh, it's also on the 19th on CBeebies at 4.30pm. And then it's on Friday the 21st at 4.30 on BBC One. So I'd imagine, let's hope that most folks will catch it. And then as I say, it's 6.30am on Christmas Day. And Uncle Worms is Christmas? It is on Sky Atlantic on Christmas Eve at 10pm. Christmas Day 
at 7pm, Boxing Day at 3pm. So that's good. Brilliant. Well, Tim Sell, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. All right, mate. Take care. That was Tim Sell talking to Steve about his two upcoming Christmas specials, Uncle Wormsley's Christmas and The Cow That Almost Missed Christmas. Quite varied, but they both look interesting. I think you can see the trailers for both of them online, can you? Yeah, yeah. Or you can, uh, as Tim said at the end, then you can watch The Cow That Almost Missed Christmas on the 19th on CBBS. I think it's half past four in the afternoon. On the 21st, at half past four in the afternoon on BBC One. And then Christmas Day at 6.30 in the morning. Which is quite late for Christmas Day if you're a kid. Well, yeah, this is it. I was saying I'd, I'd, I'd have been up for two hours back in the day yeah. uh, at, at half past six in the morning. That's on BBC Two. And Uncle Wormsley's Christmas is on Christmas Eve uh, at 10pm on uh, Sky Atlantic. Christmas Day at 7pm on Sky Atlantic again. And on Sky Atlantic again on Boxing Day at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's also, because it's on Sky, you can watch it on Sky Go. So you can watch it whenever you want. Excellent. What an era we live in. It is. It is interesting the way he was talking about, um, quite specifically, how a good idea, like that Rolf Harris idea can get taken away from you and stomped on. Yeah. And uh, so the end result is is not, you know, doesn't really resemble what you had in mind at all, which is sort of what we were talking about the last podcast, about the nature of TV and how when you see something that, you know, isn't very good on TV, maybe it, it, it started off as something that had a bit more merit and then it just got kind of manipulated and played with a bit. Interestingly, absolutely no uh, uh, negative feedback since we kind of weren't that kind about full English in the last podcast. In fact, I think we've only got a couple of comments saying that we were sort of going easy on it. I actually did get told off a little bit for being too easy on full English. Well, I have to say, I I should get a prize for diplomacy on that one. Yeah, yeah. I still haven't watched any more of it, so I I still can't talk more about it. But I, I suspect, and I certainly hope, because it would be a shame if it was a very true version of someone's vision that was then vilified. But if it was something that was taken apart and re-put back together again, you know, you always sort of have that. Because Tim, as disappointed as he seemed about the whole Rolf Harris thing, you know, it didn't knock him completely. He kept on going, he kept persevering, and he's done other stuff that's obviously very good and probably very true to, to what he had in mind. He's very set in his beliefs when it comes to, if he believes in an idea, he does protect the idea. That may be because of his past experience. And it's a good lesson for everyone to sort of perhaps stick to the guns. You know, you're only as good as your last film, and you should try and retain as much control as possible if it is your own vision. I actually had a very refreshing job interview recently where, sure enough, as, as I had sort of referred to last time, Family Guy did come up as a, as a style reference, at which point the head of the production then pipes up and goes, no, we don't have to settle for that. <laughs> that made me very happy. It made me feel like, okay, this, this could be a fit. Excellent. <laughs> He's obviously been listening to the podcast. Until that moment, I was kind of terrified that what if I get this gig and then they hear the podcast? <laughs> They'd be bashing the, the exact type of project. But no, this seems quite different, so I'm quite happy about it. But anyway, back to Tim and Baby Cow. Did you watch I'm Not an Animal? Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Did not get the um, the attention. I, th- I think the first episode was a bit of a, a cluster F and it put people off. But when it kind of got to the second or third, it hit this sort of stride that was... 
I mean, the visual style is a little overwhelming. The way they did it back then, that was it was way more collagey. It was like bits of animal and people, it's kind of like slapped together. But when you got a sense of what the characters were, they were hysterical. And it has one of my favorite lines ever from any Steve Coogan character, including Alan Partridge, or he plays, I think, a Robin. Yeah. And the, it will make no sense without context, but the line is biscuits for cheese, bitch. <laughs> But yeah, I mean that was a, that was one of those little hidden gems, perhaps, of, of British animation. And it's a pity that you know there's there's just not more of that kind of stuff going on. Because and also the problem with the nature of British TV production is that everything is done in such a short term, you know, six shows per season. That if a six episode season of a TV show doesn't really hit with the audience, and it's sort of doomed. And a lot of stuff takes a, a, a little while to get momentum. So, yeah, I mean, that's something that could have developed into something quite special, yeah. perhaps. I don't know if they wanted to do more than six episodes. Maybe it was just that was all it was ever going to be. I, I like that one. I, yeah, I might bung that on over Christmas as a sort of catch-up. It is worth seeking out. I think you can still buy it on DVD here or there. So have those uh, two Christmas specials whetted your Christmassy appetite yet, Ben? I Well, I'll have to see them first. Yeah, it may not be until 6am on Christmas Day that I'll be converted, but uh, from the trailers, they look festive, I suppose. I could come around. But you're going to have to do a little bit more. Methinks you need more convincing. What else do you have for me, Stephen? What do you have to warm my icy, icy heart? Okay, so our next Christmassy offering comes from uh, Mr. Michael Rose, a producer with, uh, you know, quite a lot to his name. He started off with Aardman, producing Wallace and Gromit in a close shave. He also produced um, What's Pig, uh, Stage Fright, a couple of fantastic shorts there. Series produced on Rex the Runt, executive producer on Chicken Run. Curse the Were Rabbit. A busy, busy fellow. Busy fellow, yeah. Recently, he was the producer on, uh, or one of the producers on Chico and Rita, and more recently, and more Christmassy, on The Gruffalo mm. and The Gruffalo's Child. Uh, but this year, they're back with a brand new film called Room on the Broom. It's, it doesn't sound very Christmassy. It's not Christmassy like something with Christmas in the title would be, like The Cow That Almost Missed Christmas and Uncle Wormsley's Christmas. Those two things really do say Christmas <laughs> because it has Christmas in the title. Now, Room on the Broom is about a witch. It does really fill you with Christmas spirit. It is of that quality. It is of that type. It is a very good watch for Christmas Day. So it's about a witch then? It's about a witch and a cat and a broom and then about a whole host of characters that they meet along their adventure. They presumably discover the spirit of Christmas, or they no, or they no, no, no they, okay. they don't. But they, but, but they have a they they have a good. At the end of the day, Christmas is is a big component of the film. No, no, there's no Christmas in it. So, is there anything to do with Christmas in this film? Um, no, no, there isn't. It's not a Christmas film, is it, Steve? It's it's on at Christmas, Steve. You failed. But it's on at Christmas. It's Christmassy. You failed and you've ruined Christmas. It's Christmassy. There's, it's it's on on Christmas Day. So it's it's the spirit of Christmas scheduling, which we all have come to know and love. Is Jesus at least mentioned in it? Um, no, in fact, um, it, what about Jesus, the baby Jesus? No, the baby the baby Jesus isn't mentioned in it at all. Is the baby Jesus and Jesus are they like different characters? Is it like Mario and baby Mario? Uh, 
Yeah. Or is it like one has traveled forward in time? No, 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 you're right. I think... Can Jesus hang out with baby Jesus? I think that baby Mario and Mario can meet each other, just like baby Jesus and Jesus can meet each other. And I think Paper Mario could be compared to the ghost of Christmas or whatever the other one is, the third ghost. The Holy Ghost. That's the one I'm talking about. Yeah. Have we alienated our Christian audience yet? No, I think we may have alienated our Nintendo audience. (laughs) Well, that's what I'm more concerned about, I'm afraid. You can't alienate Christians because they have to forgive you automatically. So if you're Christian and you're listening to this and you don't feel anything but love in your heart toward us, you're not doing it right. Maybe you and I have just saved Christmas for them. Well, thank God for that little rule. Food for thought. So... It's not about Jesus. It's not about Santa Claus. It's basically a Halloween special that they're showing on Christmas. It's not scary either, unless you're scared by lovely, charming characters voiced by another stellar British comedy cast. Let's see. It's got Simon Pegg. Yep. Lovable geek. Ooh, Gillian Anderson. Mm-hmm. She gets hotter and hotter the older she gets. Like, I wasn't that wild about her in The X-Files. She does an awful lot of English stuff. But she's a bit like Madonna. But she's like the inverse of Madonna. Like, when you see her being interviewed on, like, an American talk show, she has her scully voice. But when you see her being interviewed on Jonathan Ross, she talks in a very clipped, posh British accent. It's a little bit psychotic. Yeah, but she gets away with it because she's not Madonna. (laughs) With Madonna, it was definitely sort of, you know, affectation like everything she does. But with Gillian Anderson, I'm a little concerned it may be some kind of mental illness that she's not aware (laughs) of. Because in every other respect, she seems like quite a, a, a bright spark, you know? Yeah. But then I kind of do that too. I'm I'm more Canadary in Canada, and I'm more English in England, I guess, with my accent. But sort of for the most part, it's kind of it occupies this sort of annoying middle ground between the two that just sort of pisses off both camps. I think you sound extremely Canadary. Yeah, but in Canada, I sound extremely Englandy. What voice does she have in this? She plays uh, she plays the witch. Most of the cast in this, and I mean, you've got Martin Clunes. Rob Brydon and David Walliams as uh, is playing a camp character this time. Him? He's playing a rather camp frog. I would not think that guy would be able to pull camp off. It's a very entertaining, um, very entertaining half hour. Very enjoyable um, Christmas fair. Very loyal as well to the books, which are obviously written by Julia Donaldson and uh, illustrated by Axel Scheffler, uh, the guys that did The Gruffalo, The Gruffalo's Child, and they've worked on a few other books as well. A good track record. A fantastic track record, yes. And, uh, you know. How's it made? Is it CG or. Because I'm looking at a sort of very bad SD trailer for it at the moment, and it's hard to tell if it's CG or stop mo. Well, this is the unique thing about these films is the backgrounds. They're actually made in model, they're actually model backgrounds, uh-huh. and the characters are made in CG. Now, it's interesting, and maybe the, the, the stream, but it looks like they've rendered it out on twos to give it a stop motion look. No, now I thought that as well. I would say that it looks more like stop motion than the previous two films did. The smoothness has been taken away, which is good, yeah. in my own opinion. I think that's quite a refreshing, a refreshing approach to uh, to the creation of an animation. Yeah, no, it certainly looks good, even though there isn't a, a frame of it to do with Christmas, and I feel like I've been misled on a fundamental level. Maybe Michael Rose himself can turn me around on it, so uh, why don't we punch up his interview? Could you start by telling us a little bit about Magic Light Pictures? It's a company that I started uh, back in 2003 together with a fellow producer, uh, Martin Pope. And we set up to do uh, feature films as well as children's material. And um, we've, we've done a number of movies along the way. But back in 2003, we 
both kind of fell in love with the Gruffalo book. The Gruffalo was a huge hit back in 2009, and obviously, so you found the books and you thought that this was the perfect medium. What struck you as the, you know, as the perfect thing to translate? There was something about the book that was, I mean, it was already back in 2003, four was really something of a, a modern classic. It's written in rhyming verse, the words flow. It tells a rather magical story about a little mouse who has to kind of put aside his fears and, or confront his fears and, and, and be smart. Kids seem to love it, hearing it again and again. There was something sort of irreverent and it's not too cute, it's not too sentimental. Also, the, the illustrations by Axel Scheffler are really quite wonderful, you know, beautiful sort of illustrative style. And we just thought this, this could be something terrific and you know, made it to a film. I used to work with Artman uh, for many years, and I worked with Nick Parker, Wallace and Gromit on his half-hour film, A Close Shave, the third of the Wallace and Gromit half-hours. And I don't think there are very many things which you can make work, either creatively or commercially, as a half-hour film. But we really felt that Ruffalo had enough story, enough character, and all the potential to be, to be something, uh, to be a half-hour. It certainly was. I mean, it, it did have a, a huge success um, back then. And then, obviously, the follow-up, um, The Gruffalo's Child, which is still winning awards now, now, you stick incredibly close to the, to the medium uh, or the source material uh, provided by Julia Donaldson, the, the rhyme verse, and Axel Scheffler. Is this important to the success, do you believe? I think it's, it's important to the success um, because these are well-known books. So the, the core audience of, of kids and, and their parents' carers uh, sort of know, know the words really well. It was important to us in terms of taking a classic book. We wanted to stay very true to it rather than, you know, and it was important to the authors, to Julia and Axel as well. Um, they had many offers from sort of Hollywood movies and, and from other companies to do TV series. And for Julia, these books are almost like individual poems. Um, they're sort of one-offs. And so I think it's hard for her to think that they could be extended or, or changed or, you know, added words. You'd be tampering with something rather great. And we felt that uh, you know, the half hour allowed an opportunity to expand the book, the, the world of the book, but stay completely true to the story and, and be very true to the, to the text as well. And we've hardly changed a word in the Gruffalo and Gruffalo's Child, and, and I think none at all in Room on the Broom. That mo- moves us on nicely to, to Room on the Broom. You've got a huge, a huge cast of familiar stars in the production. Did the success of the Gruffalo bring that about did it give you access to the perfect cast or when you were when you were reading or or in pre-production did you see a character and think this dog is Martin Clunes or how did how did that go how did go how do you pick the perfect cast for half an hour <laughs> you, I, I think it's very much it's exactly uh, sort of like, as I said really we um, obviously started with storyboarding the script and then uh, creating an animatic and so you start thinking, you start playing with temp voices, you start thinking about how the characters should sound, what their personalities are. You obviously think about the best actors we know and think about what their characteristics are and how they match the roles. So it was very lucky with both Groff and Groffler's Child, we got a superb voice cast. And, and again with The Room on the Broom, you know, as, as you mentioned, the cream of British talent, really. So that's, that's how it starts. I think, you know, for example, with The Witch, we wanted her to be a kind of warm optimistic, positive witch, slightly slightly eccentric. And so, you know, Gillian Anderson, you know, she's got this incredible personality. She's got that warmth. She's got that depth and, and of course, the ability to give this terrific performance. The other thing about these uh, films is that each character, 
apart from the narration room on the roof, has the most lines, but the other characters really only have a very few lines. And the skill of the actor is to create a performance over really a very few words and almost create a little bit of a character journey in that, in that short space of time. That, that must go hand in hand with the animation as well. Obviously, the animator has to put an awful lot of effort into ensuring that these, these almost silent characters... Uh, I know uh, Rob Brydon's cap doesn't particularly say much, um, but there's some wonderful animation and some wonderful acting skills in, in that. Can you tell us a little bit more about how, you, how, how animators go about getting the expression or, or, or whether that was a goal for you? Finding the character, I mean, they obviously... The animators do, you know, a lot of testing. We also obviously plan in advance when we build the models and the rigs as to how, how the character is going to move. Then finding the personality that takes place in the first stages of, of animation when we're, we're trying things out. Um, but also a lot in the, in the writing and, you know, with the cat. The cat is a silent character. He's not, not quite as silent as Gromit. I mean, he does, he does meow and, and um, hiss and spat and, yeah, he makes, he makes sounds and noises. But uh, there was a lot to convey with facial animation and, and, and uh, you know, body movement as well. And the animators did a terrific job on that. Um, similarly, we saw someone like the dog. You know, we established up front we wanted the dog to be sort of hyper-enthusiastic, <laughs> irritatingly enthusiastic, very positive, you know, let me on the broom, let me on the broom. And, and then the animators are, are sort of working out how to create that personality, but also responding a lot to the vocal performance that Martin Clunes provided up front. Um, obviously, the genesis of the character must come from Julia Donaldson's words and obviously the design from, from Axel Scheffler. How involved are they during production? We sort of consult with them quite regularly. I mean, it's very important to me that um, sort of when the film is finished, they will be proud of it as authors. They're, they're the creators of these works. And I, I've wanted, right from the start of the Buffalo film, I wanted them to be involved throughout. They're also incredibly busy, so um, they can't you know, be with us every, every day. Um, but what we do is show them the first animatic, um, subsequent animatics. We showed them when we had sort of first animation done. You know, so we sort of showed them at, at each point, and it's very useful to get their input. I mean, Axel, whether we are within the visual world, because we're taking um, his 2D illustrated style and, and translating it into, into a more three-dimensional approach, and you want to make sure that we're in the zone. And with Julia, it's very important that I think that we've, we don't um, cross any boundaries that she would feel uncomfortable with taking the story into another zone. So getting her input is very, very important for us. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the team you work with and maybe a little bit about your relationship with the director, Max. Yeah, um, we, we were really lucky with Room on the Broom. We, we again worked with Studio Soy, who are a, a German-based studio outside Stuttgart in Germany, uh, who we also worked with on both Gruffalo and, and Gruffalo's Child. And for this film, um, the uh, directors, were two directors actually, Max Lang, who was the co-director of the Gruffalo, uh, with Jacob Shu on that film, and a young rising German talent called Jan Rachauer. Um, both of them were students at the Film Academy of Baden-Württemberg, which is in a small town called Ludwigsburg, outside the Stuttgart in Germany. And, and they're both you know, major talents. Max came on board first and uh, really storyboarded the whole film. Um, and what he storyboarded 18 months ago is pretty much what you see today. One of those sort of rare things where, where the, the first pass is brilliant and, and, and the work then was just to refine it along the way, but we didn't really make substantial changes. So, yeah, I think it's been, it's been a great journey for all of us. 
maybe you could tell us a little bit about the about the process um, of creating an animation such as this. Uh, it it does look uh, like a stop motion film. It's the obvious comparison. Uh, in the Gruffalo, you use model backgrounds and then added uh, CGI animation on top of this. Uh, am I right in thinking that the animation has been made to look more like stop motion in this? I don't think we set out to make it look more like stop motion, but I think in the character design, it maybe gives the impression that's the case. But I, I, don't, I think the, the CGI, the design and animation of the characters is, is a sort of similar approach. Uh, we've again used the model sets for Room on the Broom. Um, we used smaller sets, we probably used more maps for backgrounds and you know, set extensions, CGI set, set extensions for the early films. Uh, but, but the actual approach is, is pretty similar. It's a lot more ambitious. Um, it's ambitious because there are a lot of shots, <laughs> so uh, five, six hundred shots, which is a lot more than the Gruffalo's Child. The Gruffalo have quite a few as well. Um, and it's, so it's faster cut um, we've also got the flying sequences, uh, which is different. So we're up in the air a lot. Um, we've got bigger vistas. It's a slightly bigger world. I mean, they travel on a broomstick through a variety of different landscapes and environments, which we, we obviously took from the book. So it's a different kind of journey. It's a different story, a different world to the Buffalo films. We wanted the three films to almost sit as a sort of mini family. So the style of animation is the same. We've once again used Rennie, agreed to do the music. He's composed music for three films. There's a sort of there are stylistic similarities, but they're obviously different stories, different worlds. It does seem that you come across a different challenge with every film. Uh, Snow for the Gruffalo's Child, perhaps um, the initial concept from from the Gruffalo, and now obviously the, the vistas, the big the big pans, the flying sequences uh, in this film. Will you continue working with uh, the Julie Donaldson, Axel Scheffler um, books? Do you think? We would love to. I mean, there's, they produce together one new storybook every year, and they're, they're sort of publishing sensations each autumn. So uh, there's a fantastic range of material. I don't know what we're going to do next. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Chico and Rita. Obviously, you were the producer on uh, Chico and Rita. I mean, that was that was turned into a comic book as well. I mean, uh, but obviously the books were translated into film. I mean, is there rules around translation from one medium to another, especially when they're quite different mediums? Uh, no, I mean, I think there, there are no rules, but um, I mean, Chico Rita, yes, it began as a film and then we, we developed a, a graphic novel once the film was complete. If you start with the book, I mean, my view is that if you, if you as a producer, you option a book and want to make it, and if you love the book, then the aim is to be as faithful to it as possible. And I think quite often, in my experience, books are made into films and, and change very radically along the way. And if you sort of need to change it radically in order to make it work um, narratively, to make a, a, a movie work or a series or whatever, you know, it's understandable why you have to do it. <laughs> but I also then question, what's the point of having a book in the first place? So I think there's, there's, there's some, some, some things actually don't adapt easily and maybe should be left well alone, you know. Excellent. Michael Rose, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Michael Rose, producer of Room on the Broom the witchy Christmas special that will be broadcast on Christmas Day at about half four in the afternoon, just when everyone is... Uh, if it's my household, I'm full of cranberry sauce and alcohol by that point. I mean, the family hasn't sat down to eat. I just... You know, I like to get a head start, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if all this 
Christmas special talk is quite getting me there, Steve. Maybe if I give some stuff away, that'll infuse me with some more seasonal merriment. Why not give it a go? We had three, count them, three Christmassy competitions for you all last podcast, because we just live to give. First one was the Toy Story films, An Animated Journey by Charles Solomon, courtesy of Disney Editions, a fantastic coffee table Toy Story book. Similar in that respect to the other prize, The Fairest One of All, The Making of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs by J.B. Kaufman from Aram Press. Very similar kind of book, really goes into the detail of the film and the backstory. Of course, it's a much older film, so it also goes into its sort of cultural significance and all that jazz. Fabulous pieces of work, both of them. And we have the winners. The winner of the Toy Story films and animated journey is Ben Whitehouse. So congratulations, sir. And the winner of the fairest one of all, Sundeep Tour. We will be in touch. We will uh, have these fine tomes of animation-y wonderment wending their way to you. They will be in your hands in the near future. Well, I'm not sure how I feel now. It's good to give. Is it, though, Steve? Is it? I kind of really wanted that Toy Story book. I was hoping no one would enter it. Say, I've got an idea. You could all head over to squiggly.co.uk and check out our advent calendar, which has been going uh, every day of December. Every day a new animator or illustrator has contributed something uh, unique to Squiggly to uh, showcase their own Christmas spirit and their own artistic ability. It's a great excuse to find out about some uh, lesser knowns in the industry and, of course, some established talents. The lovely Joanna Quinn opened up proceedings on day one. And, uh, well, we've got a couple weeks to go. So there's going to be a new one every day. It's great to see the Squiggly community bound together in Christmas creativity. And it's gotten a fantastic response so far. I'm looking forward to seeing how it turns out. Yeah, me too. Though I guess you and me kind of know, but trust us, it's going to be good. So Ben, to get you in the Christmassy spirit, we are once again going to rely upon our Twitter audience. If they can't do it, no one can. Well, they're very good. Remember the Halloween podcast? No. No? I have a very short-term memory. I barely remember what I ate for breakfast this morning. If that was a success then, would you say? I'd say it was okay. Excellent. Well, I like that we can outsource the work to our audience. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's chat to the Twitter audience to see what they had to say. What films and animations and merry memories played a huge part in their Christmases? So the first one we got in was from Nathan Wilkes on Twitter, at Nathan3DWilkes. It's only just come out, but Rise of the Guardians, a brilliant animation, really gets you into any holiday spirit. Loved it. Uh, Any holiday spirit? Um, Well, isn't that that film we talked about last time? It's all the different holidays. Yeah, so he's, he's really sort of covered all the bases. We could read that again for the Easter podcast and for any other podcast that we do. Rise of the Guardians, eh? If only the squiggly listening audience could could find out more about that film if they haven't. Oh, wait! We have an interview with the guy who directed it in our last podcast. Why don't you all listen to that one as well? See what I did there? We also have a video. And a video. Man alive! The, the What we give to our audience is spectacular. What more could you need? Exactly, exactly. So yes, check those out on the old uh, squiggly website. Thanks to Nathan Wilkes for giving us the opportunity to pimp ourselves once more. Have you seen Rise of the Guardians yet? 
Uh, no. <laughs> I'm sure it's very good anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jed Bramwell, at Jed Bramwell, he says, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and he sends us a link there to the uh, American Christmas uh, classic. It is a... It's one of these ones I'm, I'm pretty sure... It must have got a couple of airings over here because it has a very recognisable look to it, and it's that very sort of, you know, of its time uh, stop-motion puppet animation. Mm. And there was a wonderful uh, homage to it in one of my favourite TV shows called It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and they did a Christmas special about two years ago, and they have a whole animated sequence in that that's done in... I think it's very specifically referencing this film because the puppets are made in exactly the same way, the animation is exactly the same, just with a Danny DeVito puppet cursing and being a sociopath. <laughs> it's absolutely glorious. I mean, it's one of those... It's a show that's been going on for quite a long time, but it just, it's, it's yet to wane in terms of its being strong comedy. I'm not sure if they show it much in England, but worth uh, hunting out. Unfortunately, that's the only bit of it that's animated, but, you know, was able to crowbar it in. Christmas animation. A nice reference done properly. And now, thanks to Jed Bramrell, I now get that scene. I now get what it was referencing. So there you go. Yeah. And I'm sure the original is is, is very charming in and of itself. So. And once again, the Twitter audience there, you know, the gift that keeps on giving there. Expanding our horizons, Stephen. Yes. Don't know why I said that like that, but... Eddie White, at Eddie White Jr., he says, uh, ranking bases, Frosty the Snowman. Oh, yeah. There's another American fable, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, this, this is the one that the the picture had on and comes to life. Yeah, the uh, I love that old like um, that pre TV show South Park where it was. Did you ever see those like really old? The original Christmas uh, Santa versus Santa versus Jesus and things like that. Yeah, and the snowman one as well. Yeah, and they were so terribly done. Yeah, <laughs> that was I think the first like viral video. But it was before YouTube or anything like that. It was when, you know, you had to watch videos on, like, real player. Yeah. It was like everything sounded underwater. You could barely see what was going on. And that really did the rounds, like, crazy before South Park became an actual show. But, yeah, I was I was rather fond of that as an adolescent. Yeah. Real player was a huge part of my college years growing up. You know, you just left school, you're at college, and they've got library computers. You just sit there watching animations all day. I should have got on with some work. Maybe I'd have made something of myself. Well, you know, hindsight 2020. What are you going to (laughs) do? Well, South Park themselves did a few good Christmas specials once it got going. Because I think that when everyone really started paying attention to that show was the... um, the very first, like, Christmas episode. Yeah. But I imagine if I watched it now, it would seem quite tepid, mm-hmm. you know? When you sort of compare to the, the way it would sort of get darker and darker over time. Back in the day, like, it was enough that, that one of the characters was, like, talking poo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that was that was mind-blowing in 1996. <laughs> like, people didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I think one of the, the one of the best South Park Christmas specials was the one with... Um with the Woodland Critter Christmas. Have you seen that one? Yes. Those are lovely. <laughs> That's fantastic. When they're the all the way through it. It's, satanic. It's, Stan has been dragged through this tale of that's this, this done in, in sort of poem. And then all of a sudden, all these, <laughs> these critters are like, oh, the new baby Jesus is coming along. The new baby, you know, he's not interested whatsoever in this story that's unfolding. And and then all of a sudden they go, Hail Satan! <laughs> and he's like, what? <laughs> it's the Antichrist that's been born. 
Well, it worked very well in terms of taking all the staples of a Christmas animated special, Mm -hmm. like the musical numbers. Usually the setup would be quite sweet, and then it would become very, very dark as it went on. There was one like the the sort of Christmas special in Afghanistan. (laughs) It starts with the very sort of noble intentions of trying to, you know, balance out the naughty list by bringing peace to Afghanistan so they go <laughs> with Santa Claus and immediately get gunned down. <laughs> yeah, it becomes Black Hawk Down, doesn't it? <laughs> and, um, uh, I mean, one of the older ones, like with the, the Charlie Manson Christmas special. <laughs> yes, <Charlie> yeah. Manson. <laughs> uh, they knew their stuff. Yeah. Well, they still do, but uh, it's so weird that that's an old show now. Over half my life ago, that show started. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's like, I think I think South Park has a distinction. You have to put it separately to do, you know, The Simpsons and Family Guy. Now, The Simpsons now, the new Simpsons occasionally hits the right note. But South Park, every new episode of South Park never fails to amuse. Really? Oh, every single episode. For me, it can be a very weak episode in, in you know, South Park standard week. But um, there's always one thing in, in the episode that, I'll just scream laughter. Yeah, that's good that, you know, there's that sort of sustainability. So shall we move on? So what else? What else have we got? Whatever Christmassy Twitters do we have? Do you want to read some out, Ben? Another one from Jed Bramwell. Also, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Which I would have to assume he's referring to the uh, animated version and not the Jim Carrey as in a suit version. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I would very much hope so. That film lost an awful lot of of what um dr seuss and and chuck jones created together didn't it well i didn't see it so again i can't really comment on it i suspect it's dreadful oh well how how are you so grumpy about christmas and yet you've gone through life without seeing how the <laughs> jim carrey's how the grinch sold christmas that would more likely be a, a reasonable excuse to be grumpy about christmas <laughs> well you know hey i'm able to find bitterness and everything around me, not just bad old Jim Carrey films, is what makes me the adorable scamp I am. But yeah, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the original uh, Chuck Jones classic, is still very much uh, loved, I would say. And and I, I love it myself. I think it's great. Just the way when he smiles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the smile curls up his face. It's a great... Uh, it's just incredible. Iconic, I would say. From Sophie Clevenau, Valhalla... Uh, from 1986, a uh, film from Denmark, used to be on for Christmas. Christopher Lee speaks Thor in the German dubbed version. Has that one ever made it to England? Maybe that was a because I know she's a uh, she's a German. Maybe that was a German Christmas yeah. staple. Uh, she did she did put a link on there as well. It's something that perhaps needs further investigation by the Squiggly Podcast. A story based freely on Norse mythology. Brother and sister Chaff and Hroska, I don't know how to f- are paid a surprise visit by gods Thor and Loki after the children disobey his orders. Thought uh, this is another one that has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas, but I guess it's just one of those ones that's on at Christmas time. Yeah. Fair enough. It looks quite nice, actually. It's very old school, very European, I yes. would say. Yeah, I've got it in front of me now playing. It's, uh, it's a visual treat. It's quite nice looking at this. Uh, some wonderful layout. I don't understand a word they're saying. <laughs> That's because I don't speak the language. Ah, that would be why. Yeah. <laughs> Mystery solved. <laughs> so, something to broaden your cultural horizons uh, this Christmas. Um, Sorry, I'm just I'm just staring I'm just staring at this layout, the opening pan on this 
on this Valhalla cartoon. It is uh, it's quite extraordinary. Mm. From Nikki Whitfield at Neek Online, it'd be a shoddy Christmas if I didn't get to watch the old Box of Delights and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series. Is that animated? I do remember, slightly remember. Perhaps my mind is playing tricks on me. An animated version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right. Oh, yeah. 1979, there was a, an animated version. I'm going to assume that that's uh, uh, what she's referring to. So uh, so for you then, Ben, what was your major Christmassy, you know, is there an animation, a, a film that you put on and instantly you're transported back to to being a kid at Christmas. Well, yeah, and I think it's probably the most obvious one, like so obvious that no one's mentioned it. It's Nightmare. I mean, I was probably about nine or ten when it was released, but it was it was perfect. It was just a perfect film. Because I had it on video, and I, there was one of those films that I literally watched every day for about three weeks yeah. when I first got it. Like, it's an, like, the way you could sort of do that as a kid, you could just watch stuff over and over again. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was like every other day for a long time. And then at least once a week for a long time. And now, you know, I'll probably watch it at least once every two years. And if it's on TV, uh, that's it. I'm settling in. And it was it was one of those films, it didn't seem like it was appreciated at the time. Now, the thing is, of course, this was before the internet and before Facebook and before sort of Twitter and everything where you kind of don't, necessarily get much of a sense for the wide cultural appreciation of something you just kind of have your group of friends and your family as your kind of sounding board or whatever mm-hmm. and trying to explain to my sister and to like certain friends like why it was genius and and looking back now and i think wow it was genius i yeah. was so smart <laughs> and I have all these other geeks who, who you know, came out of the woodwork as time went on who agreed with me. I think we've mentioned this before. It's one of those films that I think it became most marketable at least 10 years after it came out because the people who were buying all the the merchandise and toys and, and stationery and stuff like that, they were all college kids in like 2003, 2004. Forbidden Planet probably still has a Nightmare Before Christmas section. There's certainly no shortage of, of stuff with those sort of images associated with it. There's always somebody who goes um, Halloween dressed as Sally. Yeah, yeah. Always the the shy girl that didn't quite fit in, <laughs> probably, <laughs> who related yeah. to the... I didn't really relate to any of the characters. I guess I related to the fat mare. I was, <laughs> I was <laughs> the bipolar puppet. I like the mad scientist with a brain, that he could, with, a, with a head that, you know, I don't think he was in it too often for me, but... Um, that was so great with the just the stuff like where he'd take off his skull and he like wanted to make a a a version of himself but like a girl version so he rips out half of his brain and puts it yeah just those lovely and it was so like not christmasy but it was it was wonderful did you see it at the cinemas no no i didn't even see it probably in the proper aspect ratio until it came out on dvd it's one of the first dvds i bought actually i think when i was like 18 yeah it was a no-brainer if i'm gonna start rebuying stuff i already own it's going to be the good stuff good way to start good 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 thing to start a collection with yeah it was that in the first season of the simpsons i uh, i went to see it at the cinemas with my uh, my auntie francis uh-huh. who's my godmother so she uh, she fulfilled her obligation to take me to the cinemas because obviously my parents didn't want to see it mm-hmm. and she admitted later and we still have a laugh. I'll say, oh, didn't you love The Nightmare Before Christmas, Auntie Francis? Because she hated it. <laughs> she went in to watch it. She says she was terrified with it. Then she fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so I was there, sat there, transfixed at the screen next to my snoring auntie. <laughs> it, was, it just got so scared that she was tired and then fell asleep. 
<laughs> and I said, well, which bit did you like? Did you like any of it? And she said, oh, I like the bit where he squished the bug at the end. Where she just woke it up. She went, yeah, where she basically meant she just woke up. I went, where, where am I? Oh, I'll remember that bit when he asks me later. <laughs> but yeah, I think she missed out on a fantastic film there. The, the music as well, just sort of... Oh, wow. I would, arguably, I'd say that was sort of where Danny Elfman peaked, which is kind of a horrible thing to say because he's, he's been active for like 20 plus years since then. But I don't think he's ever... He's done amazing stuff since, but I don't think he's ever done anything better than what he did with that. I think the music tied it in to make it a Christmassy. If you heard that music, you wouldn't think Halloween. Yeah. You'd think Christmas. The tune that's in my head now is a very sort of Christmassy, tinselly sort of uh, sound at the beginning and the song Making Christmas. That's maybe a little bit more nightmare But the majority of the film is around Christmas. I mean, what's this? I mean, that's mm. Christmas all over, isn't it? I mean, what a tune. Yeah. And it kind of... It, when you have the sort of old Disney movies and the old animated movies... Uh, there'd be that point that was it would usually be the stuff pertaining to the love story in the film and that was always the bit they'd throw in specifically for the girls and then there'd be like the really kind of actiony or comedy bit that would be thrown in more for the guys you know so if you're watching aladdin and you're a, you're a kid you could care less about the love song on the magic carpet you want the the grandiose spectacle crazy genie ones yeah but the the love song in nightmare before christmas is so gorgeous the way it's orchestrated. I mean, the woman who sings it, who uh, was in uh, Frank and I forget her name, but she was in a whole bunch of stuff like those older. Catherine O'Hara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who I, I love. She was in all those um, Christopher Guest films and, and she was in Frank and Weenie as well and Beetlejuice and, and like she doesn't have the best singing voice, but the, the music just kind of swirls all around it. And it really, and I actually, I love the soundtrack to that film so much. I have it in different languages. Wow. Now, this is something that you can buy soundtracks to Disney films, depending on what country you're in, and they have the voice cast for that country replacing the American voice cast. And some of those songs, and like, if, think of the opening song in The Nightmare Before Christmas, that amazing Halloween song. Now imagine how awesome that is in German. Wow, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little atypical Christmas uh, gift idea, maybe, for, for people out there, if there's still time. But uh, yeah, I I, uh, I love that stuff, and I'm a big film and music geek anyway. I love like dissecting music and seeing how it was all put together. Going back to that love song, it's it's sort of mercifully short as well. It's like a minute long or a minute and a half long. It takes up a very small chunk of the film. It's very forlorn. Mm-hmm. It fits in with the rest of the tone. It's not like lovey dovey. It's sort of melancholy. More of a, a gentle respect that she had for for Jack. Although it was love, it wasn't in your face. She didn't sing the love song like a Disney princess sings a love song. Exactly. It was more of a like say a gentle respect as opposed to like a a mad I'm in love I want to marry you sort of thing. And if you hear like the Spanish version, it's just like this really. You know, if you had that sort of playing on your iTunes without the context of anyone who'd seen it in the movie, it would just come across as this really, really lovely Spanish song. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, that would be my very long-winded answer, as all my answers tend to be. <laughs> but I think if there's a film that warrants praise, it's that one in my eyes, you know. Mm. I think for me, if we're going to stick with stop motion, I think it has to be the Wallace and Gromits for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I saw The Wrong Trousers, I think it was on a, it must have been on a boxing day because I was around at my grandma's house and just seeing that for the first time. And then the build up to the close shave, there's always something about them. I mean, they're not specifically Christmas shorts. There's nothing Christmassy about them. However, they're 
Aardman did do idents for the BBC where Wallace and Gromit would be sat around with crackers and you know the the big BBC Two logo and yeah and, and, and things like that. You have like the Radio Times cover inevitably with Wallace and Gromit on the on the front and. Yeah, they don't necessarily transport me back to Christmas morning as a kid or Christmas as a kid quite so much as uh, the Tom and Jerry short, The Night Before Christmas. Have you seen this one? I probably have, I'm sure. It's where they're just sort of just goofing around the Christmas tree. It's a very early one. And it's just basically the traditional Tom's chasing Jerry around the Christmas tree, gag after gag after gag. Uh, Jerry pretends to be a light, you know, Tom gets electrocuted. Jerry puts a mousetrap in Tom's milk. In the end, um, Jerry escapes through the letterbox into the cold and the snow, and Tom feels really bad because uh, Jerry's basically freezing to death outside. Right right at the end, um, Tom goes out and finds Jerry, lifts him up by his tail. He's like a lollipop. He's frozen solid. Oh, yeah, of course I know that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, And the friends in the end, you know, which is... I'm not usually one for that sort of thing. I mean, the last time... Tom and Jerry became friends was for Tom and Jerry the movie, which was an absolute. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, you sent me that video of the guy talking about a nostalgia it. critic. I hadn't seen the film. It was I was aghast. At, yeah, what a nightmare that was. Thank God I didn't see it. I just I think I intuitively sensed that it would be bad from the trailers, but seeing actually how like this what the story was. Yeah, they become mates in the first reel. Kiss my ass. Yeah, and not only that is the start chatting as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As well as like, I mean, having them sort of like reconcile at the end of the a Christmas special after minutes of pain and suffering, and then the thing is, Tom, Jerry can't die. Tom needs Jerry to stay alive so that they continue their cycle of you know masochistic abuse. Yeah, that's how life works for them. <laughs> so that's probably why he saved him from the cold. It's like, oh, we've got to thaw him out because we've got some, we've got some more getting at each other's throats to do tomorrow. Yeah. Boxing day, it's back to normal. But for now, it's Christmas. We can we can chill out for a sec. Yeah. Tomorrow you can go back to, you know, putting my gonads in a mousetrap or whatever it was they uh, they had on the agenda for the day. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic Christmas short, which uh, always transports me back. I really enjoyed that one. So on that note, from Upstart Thunder, at Upstart Thunder, the Tom and Jerry episode where they go into a laboratory and the skeletons sing a song... Always on at Christmas. Why would that always be on at Christmas? Yeah, it, 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 it's, <laughs> it's not as Christmassy as the one that I've just referenced. Let's put it that way. It's again, there's a strange sort of impulse to put all the Halloween stuff on at Christmas, like that broom film. Yeah. Also from Upstart Thunder, we have a link to a uh, a rarer MGM short called Bottles. Another one always on during Christmas, apparently. So this one appears to be on YouTube, the whole thing. Are you familiar with this one? No. No, not at all. It's um Yeah, it's creepy. It's singing, dancing, mewling bottle babies with rubber nipples on their skulls. Oh wow, yes I am. Oh my god. That has a bit of that tin toy vibe of the weird kind of malformed baby like <laughs> to it. I do remember this one. Well, once you see it, how do you forget? Wow, I haven't seen this in in years. Yeah. Although you're right about the creepiness of them uh, babies. So it basically seems to be a uh, all sorts of pharmaceutical products getting together and having a bit of a knees up. Basically, yeah. Back in the time where you could make an animation about anything. You still can make an animation about anything, but... Uh, this is literally yeah. d- drugs and pipettes and syringes all having a, a good time <laughs> getting high off each other's supply. <laughs> well, yeah. The old man's got a, a pipe 
think I know where this is going. Oh, yes, God, I remember the ending now. It's slightly terrifying where he's going swirling around all the tubes and like the, mm. the sort of chemistry set. Well, I'd like to thank Upstart Thunder for reminding us both of the true meaning of Christmas. Yeah. Just getting munted off our tits. <laughs> Substance abuse is the is the true meaning behind Christmas. Yeah. That is the views of myself and not necessarily the Squiggly Podcast. Well, given the Squiggly Podcast is you and me, I think we're both sort of in agreement. Mm. The Squiggly Podcast is basically saying drugs are good. But not necessarily good for you. J.K. Ricky at Animator J.K.R. has sent us the Eaton Park Christmas Star commercial. <laughs> you know, that old chestnut, Stephen. Yeah, the well-known Christmas uh, staple. It isn't Christmas time till I see this each year. Looks quite old. I wonder if they actually cycle the same ad each year. It would appear so, yeah. It's, um... It's a star trying to get to the top of a tree. Uh, he's failing. I suppose that's the equivalent for him when people get all Christmassy when they see the uh, Coca-Cola adverts. Oh, yeah. You know how every year, uh, recent years, Facebook and Twitter become... Uh, there's one afternoon where everyone goes mental because they've seen the Coca-Cola advert on the telly. You know what I love is when people point out how the Western interpretation of Santa is an invention of Coca-Cola, like they just discovered it. Yeah. Really? That's so interesting. Fucking people and that banal trivia. <laughs> That's been interesting for the last 20 years <laughs> that I've known it. What a revelation. Uh-oh, yeah. I'm getting grumpy again. I'm going to need... Another Christmas top-up. Another dose of Christmas magic for, for Ben, stat. Of course, another film that's been getting a lot of love on the Twitter is, uh, uh, well, The Snowman, our, our own British sort of staple of Christmas. So from Angerad Pierce, and uh, also mentioned by uh, Vishal Shah, that's um, at Angerad Pierce on Twitter, and at Freak Signal on Twitter, uh, The Snowman, classic and timeless, R.I.P. John Coates. So yes, of course, that, uh, you know, everyone I think knows about The Snowman. It is our British contribution to the landscape of Christmas animation. Certainly the one that's the most beloved over here. Very sad, of course, John Coates no longer with us. I think he did get to see the new version, The Snowman and the Snow Dog, or at least a version of it in its latter stages before he passed on. And I mean, it's looking like a very, very lovely film. You know, it's interesting. I just assume that, you know, because every country has its own, like, um, institution and uh, for us it's the snowman i was talking to some european friends of mine about the snowman you know and how i had just um uh, gone to interview well the interview that's coming up right now um and i brought up the snowman and the snow dog and how they'd made a sequel to the snowman and how you know it looked really exciting they're like what's the snowman like i just hadn't made it over that it's like how do you know? and i'm just like i'm you, you didn't you know it it's a snowman it's a, it's a snowman and a little kid and the david bowie for some reason is at the beginning and yeah, they go flying and uh you know walking in the air yeah they didn't know what the hell i was talking about i just kind of assumed it was this all-reaching thing i know it definitely made it to north america at least yeah but i dragged them to a bookshop and did, like found the raymond briggs the original book and to sort of show them and they were just like no i don't know what this is wow it's astonishing. So, missing out. If, you know, the, the small percentage of our European audience who might be listening and don't know what we're talking about, I think The Snowman is the British Christmas classic. It's been followed up by a, uh, 30 years later, uh, don't know what you'd call it really, and not like a sequel, but more a sort of companion film. Uh, the next episode. I suppose, yeah. In the fable. 
it took John Coates 30 years or near 30 years to convince Raymond Briggs, the original author and illustrator, that a sequel would be a good idea. Because obviously there's always the, the danger of a sequel being uh, just a cash-in. Mm-hmm. This particular version, I'm, I'm pleased to say, having seen it, is nowhere near a cash-in. It's just a, a wonderful, faithful follow-on from uh, from a much-loved film. If you go onto the Squiggly website, you can see the trailer for the film. Uh, we also have a video with some clips and uh, a mini-interview with the assistant director, Robin Shaw, who I also talked to when I was up at Lupus, along with co-writer Hilary Aldis, brought back as one of the uh, handful of people from the original crew to work on the second one. So let's hand it over to them to hear about how this whole thing came together. Well, uh, first of all, I mean, it's uh, been 30 years since the, uh, the first one. Uh, what was it that sort of sparked the idea of bringing it back after all this time? Well, uh, John Coates, who sadly died in September, who was a producer on Snowman 1, had always wanted to do Snowman 2. Mm-hmm. But uh, Raymond had always said no. All right. Um, but Raymond sort of mellowed over the years, and then John reapproached him, and he said, well, why not? And then there was, of course, uh, the 30th anniversary coming up. So John approached Channel 4 and they said, yeah. So Channel 4's 30th anniversary as well. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the snowman one of the first things they commissioned. It's the very first thing they commissioned, yeah. I did uh, read uh, yesterday, I think, that Raymond Briggs was quite happy with how it's come together, uh, which is obviously good to, to know, but... Nothing but charming and delights. <laughs> <laughs> was there a, a, anything that sort of suggested why he mellowed over time? He has puts on this false grumpy front. Raymond okay. isn't at all grumpy. Uh-huh. It's just he didn't think. You know, he said the snowman melted first time round, so that's the end of the story. Right. Uh, but he's always been wonderful to work with. Mm-hmm. Very very generous. Very very complimentary of everybody. He says you know says everybody is very talented and wonderful. I wish I could thought of that idea so he's a very very generous person mm-hmm. also I think what with time things just don't seem quite as your opinions on things do change yeah slightly your feelings about things aren't as clear cut as they were before maybe that's something to do with that I don't know mm-hmm. uh, were you both involved in the original Robin's too young to be involved I was, I was involved in as much as I watched it on telly uh-huh. <laughs> No, I was involved with the development of the book into a film with with Joanna Harrison, who is the uh, art director on the film. Mm -hmm. So I I sort of was responsible for for the, you know, going going to North Pole and meeting Father Christmas and the scarf, and so we developed it. So in developing a a follow-up story, are you sort of using your original adaptation more as a sort of source material than the original storybook? Well, the new story is a completely new story. It's got oh. nothing to do with the first book at all, except right. in the bar, but except it's got, obviously, the new case, it's got the snowman in it. Mm-hmm. But it's a completely new story. Right. But when we wrote the story, we're very much mindful of Raymond and Raymond's way of thinking, his ethos. Mm-hmm. So we were very much aware of, I mean, all his stories are about friendship, loss of friendship and loneliness so we're very mindful we had to sort of the new story had to be along those sort of lines sympathetic with, with Raymond otherwise it just wouldn't work yeah. so, um, and was the um, the adding of the dog character your idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't say it was my idea or jo- Jojo's idea but it was, uh-huh. 
it is sort of organically. It's organically, yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. Also, the, the original book is, you know, it's very slim. Uh-huh. Yeah, if you just turn the book into a film, it lasts yeah, quite quickly. Five, ten minutes. Five, ten minutes. Yeah. yeah. When we were talking about the look of the, the new film, we were thinking quite often it would be nice to go slightly further towards the book than the film. Right. And I think, I don't, know, I don't know what you think, but I think we've ended up somewhere happily in between the book and the original film. Mm-hmm. And looking at the, uh, the trailer just now, and, and like I was saying, the, the textural <coughs> quality and just the way it looks, it has a very sort of handmade feel to it, um, which uh, must be quite, I mean, with all the sort of advances, I guess, or all the sort of current digital processes that are sort of like the industry norm at the moment, what was sort of the process to get it looking so traditional and so uh, in sync with the original? Stick to drawing. Stick yeah. to drawing. <laughs> no, we, we, we always, we did, was it, to, to make it look the same, or feel the same, not look the same exactly, but feel the same, you have to do it in the same way. Right. It's just no-brainer, really. Mm. You can't sort of say, well, we'll try and get a computer to compos- copy what we actually can do perfectly well yeah. in the old-fashioned way. I mean, this film is a lot more papery than the first film. Right. The first film, everything was traced on to cell. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, we've kept all the rendering, the, the colour pencil rendering on the paper. Mm-hmm. And because we've got the computers to put it together, it's meant that we can do that and stick to it being very, very much drawn. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of invisible work going right. into keeping it looking draw. In which case, like, in the, in the first snowman, to get that look, using like acetate cells presumably, mm. were, was it pencils and crayons then? or It was Caran d'Ache wax uh-huh. crayons. So that sticks on which, the cells. Which, which sort of, sort of stuck on the cells. <laughs> didn't really stick on the cells because, um, well, I mean, if you, if you look at the, the, the film, you mm. can see uh, that some of the rendering actually lifted up again. And so, uh, as well as yourself and uh, Joanna? Joanna, yeah. Uh, how many of the other uh, of the original team are on board with this one? Roger Mainwood, an animator. Roger. Jill. Jill Brooks. Richard, no, Richard Nye, did he work on the first one? Mm-hmm. Not many, about three or four. So is it sort of... The, as far as the team that makes up the film, then is it quite a large group of people? Is it? I think there were about eight, uh, there eighty were others. Eighty-nine, I think, uh, in total at, at, at its highest, with a very big age gap between the oldest and the youngest. Mm. A satisfyingly big age. <laughs> so is that uh, because I guess of the nature of this property? Is is that something that I guess Channel Four would be more up for investing in? Because I found that you know, with with the current sort of climate of like, British television animation, like sort of one-off shorts as well as TV shows, it seems that things have taken a bit of a, a slide. So to see something like this, which is obviously quite mm. uh, big in scope and grand and more like the old days, well, especially um, drawn quality mm. animation rather than cheap, farmed out to China or India. Yeah. Um, serious animation. Yeah. Yeah. So in the first film, there are a lot of quite you know, visually impressive sequences. 
things that were quite, I think, sort of adventurous at the time, and the mm-hmm. sort of the, the flying was, sequences in particular. That was down to John Coates because um, we'd done this little storyboard where we flew, we flew um, the snowman and the boy off to see Father Christmas, and he he literally had the idea. He said, "Why don't we?" He said, "I've just he'd just been to a film festival." and he'd seen the work of this young chap who'd just left um, college called Steve Weston. And he'd done this travelling animation, which was completely unique. And he said, uh, I think it would be really, really, you know, if we could get this guy, it could really lift this film. So he got Steve over from Canada, especially to make the film. So Steve came over, over with his girlfriend, Robin. Basically, he was handed this three and a half minutes and he just went and did it. So that was, you know, completely groundbreaking. Mm. Completely groundbreaking. Yeah. Is there stuff like this in, in this one? Oh, yes. Yes. Has to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I saw the film, I saw the flying sequence and I thought, that is completely new. I could see it was completely new and um, I thought, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to do Bugs Bunny or anything like that. But I wanted to be in animation, and, um, and when I saw that, I thought the amount of skill, craft, and beauty that has gone into well, into the film as a whole, but especially the flying sequence, that was just so gobsmacking. Yeah. yeah. Did you take that on then for this one? Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've done it with um, other jobs in the past. No. Um, flying, flying camera with a whole. We're just redrawing the frame over and over again, the whole frame, background, everything. So yeah, particularly key. Does that take a sort of extra, like, learned skill to, to be able to determine how the background is going to move with the camera? I don't, I don't know entirely what it takes, but it takes some, I don't know, different awareness of, of how space works. Mm-hmm. When I'm boarding stuff like that, I always, I always try and board it very methodically so that half the work's done in the storyboard. And to me, it's very clear how to get from there to there to there to there to there. But that if I try and get someone else to do it, I realise that it actually occupies a completely new, untouched part of their brains, by and large, and um, they need a lot of help and guidance with it. So, uh, I don't know. It's, an, I don't know. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> slightly, I don't know, maybe I'm slightly autistic or something, I don't know. So as a uh, Hillary, as a as a writer, have you written consistently over the last thirty years for film and TV? No, no. I developed the Bear, uh-huh. which was another Raymond Briggs book. Uh, game with Joanna about um, ten or eleven years ago. Again, we had to completely invent completely new characters, and so I did that. And then I've uh, written a half-hour script for Sky. I did called the 13th kick and I wrote that completely but apart from that I did that one by myself um, Ordinarily then within the industry what sort of roles do you like to take on? Well I like directing though, uh-huh. I admit. Uh, I've, I've, I've done everything because I started off as a you know, trainee and I did mm. a, bit of ev- a bit of everything a bit of paint and trace a lot of animation I, mean, I was animating for I don't know how many years and then I've gradually fallen into direction and I, I, I really enjoy sort of pulling talent together mm-hmm. and sort of using the best out of everybody and also, I, I mean, I do like writing yeah. writing as well because it's great to see this stuff come to, come to life but I think orchestrating talent, you know, hoping you get the best out of every people and get everybody happy and I think that's, I really enjoy that. 
Do you find that perhaps the, the approach to writing is different this time around? If you can sort of remember like how you went about writing the first one <laughs> in terms of your approach as a writer yeah. and if that's sort of different well, the, first one, the first one, Joe and I sat down with bits of paper on the floor, went down uh -huh. the pub, came back, threw ideas around. Uh -huh. I think as much as I was. <laughs> I mean, very, it's very much just relaxing and bouncing off each other. How did your relationship with Lucas begin? Well, it's through John Coates, really. I mean, I've known, I've known Camilla and Ruth for quite some time because Camilla uh, was uh, commissioning editor for Channel 4 when I did the Bear. But uh, I got involved with, well, with Lucas because John needed a production company when he actually was commissioned for mm -hmm. 7-2, so he asked Camilla and Ruth to be producers, so that's how we got involved. And have you, has it been a good fit? Yeah, I think exactly. I think it's been a very happy studio. I think you will get on very well together. Yeah. I don't know how long I've, I've, I've known them both, but I have known them both mm -hmm. um, for, for some time. And then Camilla gave me a call. I can't see for ages ago now. Um, About a year and a half. Probably. End of last spring, oh. I think, and said, well, asked me to be involved in this top secret project. It wasn't very top secret for very long, but um, because she knew of my particular skills as an animator and director. I've, met, I've worked mainly in commercials, directing commercials, and I'm, I'm, she knew that I um, knew how to marry up computers and drawn animation and not lose the drawn mm -hmm. element to it, but also that I could um, handle well, flying animation. Couldn't say no, really. <laughs> How did you get started in the industry, like on the whole? Well, after studying animation, I actually went for a job at TVC where Hillary was. Really? Uh, yeah, I told you this. Um, <laughs> uh, but ended up working just around the corner for um, a small company called Brian Stevens Animation, where I was assistant to Jack Stokes, who, well, in the industry is very well known animator and um, learnt an awful lot in the few months I was there. I think I was quite lucky in that I, I, um, I started when it was still quite good for drawing animation. There wasn't a lot of computer stuff around and anything that did was computer based. They tended to trace off with the computers or try and trace off drawn animation. Yeah. So there'd always be a line test done before the uh, CG tried to copy it. And so I, I, yeah, I very quickly became an animator and then I think within six months of leaving college I was directing commercials. Mm. I've always enjoyed that. Hard work and very stressful and in some ways quite soul-destroying but I've always quite liked the rush of having to go from nothing yeah. to having an idea, to boarding it, to designing it, to um, getting a team together and finishing it off within you know, a few months. Mm. And everyone's different, every commercial's different. You have to have a new idea for everything. So it's been very nice working just on one thing for 18 months and something that you can really care about as well. well of course, one of the other main sort of parts of the original film that made it so kind of iconic or established was the, the music in it and uh, just how big a role it played in it. And is this similarly like a dialogue free music based? Completely. I think we've got. 
three spot effects, and then we've got uh, that's it. Um, but no, it's totally music. Bloody good music as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got there in the Was the music produced beforehand to be animated to or no, no, the, the composers worked to the to the animatic. Mm. It would have been nice if we had had that luxury. Because when at the, at the recording, when I was hearing the music, playing over these perfect speakers and you know, orchestra out there and watching the film on the monitor, I thought, ooh, it'd be nice if we could do a little bit of extra, I don't know, this or that to the animation here, there. You can always carry on fiddling. Forever, Is it the same composer or is it someone new? Someone new. It's different. No, no, it's, it's, wait and see. It's very hush hush at the moment. So it's uh, sort of mid-November-ish now. Um, I would assume we were in the pretty late stages of the game. Yeah, and what's all the scenes are composited uh-huh. as of last Friday. Well, as of Friday, actually, and they're now being graded, mm-hmm. colour corrected. Do you know the air date? Christmas Eve. Isn't it? Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is probably the best slot. So, do you guys have plans for what's next on the agenda? Uh, I've been writing really? a, a series uh-huh. um, with my wife. Then work on that. I hope. Cool. Well, I've got a, I've got a series, uh, a CGI series, which may be happening. Cool. Classic, classic children's uh, book. But you know, finance, money. Mm. I did uh, uh, read that I think it was Camilla, maybe who was developing another Raymond Briggs, or hoping to. Yes, that's definitely. Yeah, yeah um, that would be a feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, would so that be something you guys would? Well, Robin, I think it's going to be involved with that. Yeah. That's the idea. If it happens. The problem is, it's ra- raising money, you know, for uh-huh. 2D animated. And for adults. Yeah, it's, mm. it's, and it's not, it's not a commercial, it's not going to be lots and lots of merchandise and coming up the other end of it. So hopefully it'll happen, but it'll take, I think it'll be a long, long time to get all the money together. Well, best of luck. Um, Thank you. Really, really looking forward to this. Uh, I think lots of people are as well. As soon as it sort of was announced, it was. You know, people, it was kind of a buzz with, with you know, really everyone's childhood. You know, and it's the it, it show like every year now. I mean, yeah, the original year. year. So uh, it's it's great that there's a sort of you know, companion piece out for it. Um, yeah. Well, thank you both very much for talking to me. Thank, thank you. you. So that was Ben chatting to um, Robin Shaw and uh, Hilary Aldous um, from Lupus Films, the uh, director and the co-director of The Snowman and the Snow Dog, which is shown on uh, Christmas Eve at 8 o'clock at night on Channel 4. I still have yet to see the whole thing. Uh, I'm going to wait until Christmas Eve to watch it. I opened my presents a little bit early, Ben, and I got to see it. Well, Steve, you're part of this have-now generation. (laughs) Yes, I certainly am. You liked it, I assume. I mean, just looking at the the way it, it... it's animated. You kind of have to. I mean, the story is going to be what it is. It's a, from a visual perspective, I'd assume everyone is going to just watch it with their jaws open. Yeah, it is visually engaging as the first one was. And what is so so nice about it is, obviously, it was produced in the UK like the original was. It's also been produced pretty much like the original film was, without obviously with with the help of of certain software. It's not been done in Maya and, and some sort of rendering package has been put over it. It is incredibly faithful. I mean, it's sort of amazing the way they would have to have done it back in the day with like 
crayons on acetate cells. Yeah. Like what a nightmare. And it really kind of renewed, like I was, I've been watching like bits of footage of the old one as well. And just sort of watching with that in mind, it's like, holy, you know, it's, it's spectacular. So that makes sense to not do it that way in the sense of, of easing the process a bit. But, you know, I think back then animating using paper just wasn't the option it is now because mm. you, know, you can just sort of key out the uh, the rest of the shot and, and composite it in. But yeah, in terms of just all the individual elements and the way they were sort of produced to have that exact same look and feel, you know, with a 30-year gap, it's, it's pretty stunning. So, Mazeltov, which isn't the most Christmassy phrase, I suppose, but uh, uh, really good work, it seems, from, uh, from Lupus Films and Celebration, I think, also of Channel 4's 30-year anniversary, which uh, was good justification for them to shell out a few extra bob on it. Unfortunate that, you know, we can't do that more often, but, you know, when you get a good excuse to, what better way? So, yes, look forward to that uh, 8 p.m. Christmas Eve, The Snowman and the Snow Dog. So then, Ben, did it work? Is the Christmas spirit dancing merrily around your soul? Eh, well, I don't know, I guess. I mean, those all look pretty good. And uh, that gift-giving and reminiscing was kind of fun. Uh, you know what? I think I'm coming around. Yeah, Christmas is not all that bad, I guess. It's an excuse to drink during the day, right? Um, uh... I use turkey legs as cutlery to spoon... Brie and cranberry sauce into my gaping maw, scream abuse at my in-laws, have cathartic hate sex at the office party with that girl who ignores me the other 364 days of the year. You know what? I, yeah, I think I get it now. Yeah, well, I think this is probably the best we're going to get out of you, Ben. I did try. Well, I'm glad I was at least able to shine just a little bit of uh, Christmas. Some fuck all is beeping their own outside. Get out your fucking car, go up and knock on the door. It pisses me off. People stand outside somebody's house and go, boop, 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 on the arm. Like they can't get out of the fucking car. Walk like four yards, knock on the door like a fucking normal person. And what they'll do is they'll beep the horn, yeah? And then three, four seconds later, they'll beep the horn again. Three, four seconds. Give them a chance to put the fucking shoes on. Wait a minute, Steve. All this time you were stringing me along, masquerading as a paragon of peace and joy. When it turns out you're just as miserable as the rest of the world. Arguably more so, in fact. Thank you, Steve, for showing me the true spirit of the season. Yeah, that's right. Disdain and vitriol towards your fellow man. Baby Mario bless us, everyone. We'd like to thank Tim Searle of Baby Cow Animation. Don't forget you can catch The Cow That Almost Missed Christmas on the 19th at 4.30pm on CBeebies. You can also catch it on the 21st at 4.30pm on BBC One. And it's also on Christmas Day at 6.30 in the morning on BBC Two. Uncle Wormsley's Christmas is on Sky Atlantic HD and Sky Atlantic Plus One. It's on Christmas Eve at 10pm, it's on Christmas Day at 7pm and it's on Boxing Day at 3pm. We'd also like to thank Michael Rose of Magic Light Pictures. Room on the Broom is on Christmas Day at 4.35pm on BBC One. Thanks also Robin Shaw and Hilary Aldis. The Snowman and the Snow Dog will be broadcast 8pm Christmas Eve Channel 4. Uh, we should say that if you entered our Arthur Christmas card competition, 
You've not been forgotten. The winner will be notified and announced in the new year. Thanks to everyone who entered. They all look smashing. Watch this space. And we'd also like to give a big thank you to all the guests that we've had on the Squiggly podcast since March, since we started. And indeed, everyone involved in squiggly.co.uk this year. It's been an absolute pleasure working with all the fantastic writers, having all you fantastic readers, and of course, listeners to this podcast. Thank you all very much for supporting Squiggly. Keep spreading the word. Uh, There's plenty more still to come. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you.